Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Brian Tallarico. Friendly, insightful, and incredibly prolific, hardworking Chicago critic Brian Tallarico is the editor of the prestigious film website RogerEbert.com, which carries on the legacy of its late great namesake with some of the most profound pieces of entertainment writing you will find on the web. With two decades of experience covering film, video games, Blu-ray and DVD releases, interviews and entertainment news online, on the radio, and in print, Brian Tallarico continues to wear many hats today as a TV writer at Vulture.com, a contributor at Rolling Stone, and as a freelancer for multiple outlets, including the New York Times, the playlist, and Rotten Tomatoes, also serving as the president of the Chicago Film Critics Association. Brian co-produces the Chicago Critics Film Festival every May and continues to be a regular guest on both radio stations and podcasts. Brian has been a great online friend for a number of years, and I'm honored and thrilled to welcome him to Watch with Jen so we can talk in virtual person today. Hello, Brian. Well, how are you doing, and how are you adapting to pandemic life? Um, Day by day, I guess. I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. what we're all doing, right? Like, taking it one step at a time. It's kind of, if I've learned anything in the last few months, I've tried to adapt that part of my brain that just takes things one day at a time. Absolutely. Uh, this is really all we can do. I'm, I've never been very good at that, but I feel like we're all waiting to see what happens tomorrow. You know what I mean? So. Yes. Yeah. Well, you are a Chicagoan and the yep. editor of RogerEbert.com. So what is that like and how do you keep Roger's Chicago film legacy alive, both on the site and also as the president of Chicago Critics and a producer of the Critics Festival? Uh, That's a good question. Um, It's not a conscious thing as much as it is a lead by example thing and the example being Mm -hmm. his. In other words, all the people, I, I feel like most critics nowadays, but especially Chicagoans, have read, were raised on Roger's books and his reviews. So his style influences what we do. So I guess when people ask me how I keep Roger's legacy alive at the site, it's a quality control thing above all else. We're not going to publish things that I don't feel he would have approved of, although Mm -hmm. that makes it sound more conscious than it is. It's not like like I look at everything and say, would Roger have liked this? I just know that (laughs) if we set a high standard, then we will meet that goal in terms of keeping his legacy alive so it's the standard of our staff Mm -hmm. of our editorial style of our writers of all of it really that i think is the best and then in terms of the cfca um it's a similar thing like roger when roger spoke about like empathy in in the movies and compassion especially later in his career that wasn't just the way he looked at film that was the way he looked at everything so i try to be a very empathetic and compassionate president as much as I can be. I've been Mm -hmm. trying to reach out to people in the CFCA during this quarantine to see how they're doing and moving us forward in terms of more 
inclusivity in terms of who's on our staff, on our in our association. Things that I think, again, not consciously what Roger would have done, but I think he mm-hmm. would have been a part of all of these movements, if you know what I mean. So. Yes, I think you're doing just a stellar job. I I love all of the writing that I see on RogerEvil.com. And when I hear about these festivals, I'm always impressed. Actually, when I talked to Robert Daniels uh, recently, he was the one that told me all about the Critics Festival, and I was so yeah. impressed. Yeah. I yeah, think, we're, we're crazy. Oh. We program a film festival for almost – we have 1% of the budget of the Chicago International Film Festival, just for the <laughs> record. And that's not an exaggeration. I've seen the numbers. And uh, we do it – I pretty much do it from my couch with Eric Childress and Colin Suter. Those are the two guys who really do a lot of the programming, and we do it for no profit at all. Everything goes back into the next year, and uh, I missed doing it this year. Oh, we've decided not to reveal what was going to happen this year, just for yeah whatever reason. But man, it was going to be good. It was going to be oh no, I know. I'm seeing all these movies come out that we had programmed, and I'm like, "Uh, (laughs) so great, but that's okay. Yeah, I think every big city should do something like that. I'm kind of yeah. thinking I should talk to the people over at Phoenix Film Festival, like, hey, we need a spinoff. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I mean, talk to studios, especially like the mini, mini indies or the major indies, whatever we want to call them, like your IFCs and your A24s and your Magnolias. They want to get word of yeah. mouth. I mean, that's what we offer. We offer a platform. We're not making any money. We're just trying to get attention to movies that we like so Mm -hmm. and it seems harder and harder to do in this fractured landscape of 1200 streaming channels so exactly pushing through is harder than ever i think something like that could work totally in phoenix i'm sure you have an indie crowd in phoenix that would do that oh we have a big art house crowd here Yeah, yeah for sure well what is it like choosing the films for the festival do you go for new stuff and also ebert fest are you a part of that and what I is am the- not i'm oh, okay. involved in ebert fest because that's an entirely separate organization from RogerEbert.com. Yeah. i'm a guest there and okay. I do panels and Q&As, but I don't do programming. I mean, I've thrown out a suggestion here and there to the programmers, um, sure. but that's the extent of it. As for our fest, it's all Chicago premieres, and it is primarily Sundance and South by our, our farm systems. Okay. I mean, the, the concept is really simple in that it's hard to believe other people haven't done it, in that we go to Sundance and South by and even TIFF and into all these places and hear and see all these movies that we talk to people about and they have no chance to see them. So the yes. idea is just, Hey, we're going to bring you the movies we talked about at Sundance and South by that we liked. And it's really that simple. Uh, we've turned down major films cause we didn't like them. In other words, mm-hmm. the, everything in our program has a seal of approval from the CFCA, at least the, at least the programmers of the festival. Um, which I think is kind of unique and different. Like we don't have, again, I'm not trying to come down on other festivals trying to keep afloat in this horrible pandemic, but when profit isn't a concern and only quality is, it kind of changes the way you program. Absolutely. No, I agree. When I talked to Nell Minow, who's an editor on RogerEbert.com, as you know, um, I asked her to share any advice she had for younger or novice writers who are just starting to try to find their voice and write about film. And I wanted to ask you the same thing. Say you're talking to a young writer and they ask you what they should work on in their pieces. What would you tell them? Um, 
I mean, I've been asked that over the years, and the first thing I always say is to do it all the time, right? Okay. Constantly. Um, I've been writing. Believe it or not, I was the film and music critic for my middle school newspaper. Me so too. I've been doing this <laughs> for decades, and for years before I started doing it online, I was writing reviews and sending them to friends and family over email. I yep. no no exaggeration. I have written thousands of reviews, mm-hmm. and I'm still trying to get better each time I do it. It sounds incredibly cheesy, but great musicians still practice. Keith Richards yes. still sits in a room and plays with his guitar and fiddles with it and learns and tries new things. So you have to be doing it all the time if you want to hone any artistic talent, which I think criticism is. Mm-hmm. So my first advice is don't wait for anything to come to you. Just get out there and write. Find a movie and write a review of it. And even if nobody reads it, you're practicing, you're honing that part of your skill set every time you sit down to analyze. So that's my main advice is do it a lot. I love that you were writing about film in middle school. I did the same thing. Like the first, I'd always loved film. Like the only time I got in trouble was for talking about film and quiet time and like second grade. Right. And, um, then later on, I wrote this biography of Chaplin in sixth grade, and wow. my teacher entered it in this like district competition without telling me, and I won. And oh, so cool. after that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can just write about film, because I, yeah. I always loved writing. And so then I wrote like a Leonard Malton guide in yeah. middle school. I was just totally nerdy like that. Yeah. And so I love that you were equally passionate because a question I don't think I've ever asked you is how did you first get into film and writing about film? Was it middle school or were you yeah, kind of into forever. it? Uh, well, yeah. I was, um, like, I mean, I got the Ebert yearbooks from a very young age. And so I was yes. into him and his style and, writing and then but what's funny is it was very much a hobby for a long time i was a theater and english major i thought i'd be a screenwriter or something along those lines and i directed theater here in chicago and before i realized theater has even less money in it in terms of (laughs) writing does but then um and then i worked odd jobs for a long time before i uh discovered writing on the internet really um i volunteered to write, to do TV recaps for a website called Test Pattern back right after 9-11 is when I first got published online. So we're going on 20 years now. Uh, And I started with Sopranos recaps, believe it or not. I cut my my teeth recapping arguably the best TV show of all time. And it's funny, I was lucky enough to meet David Chase a couple years ago and I told him that. And I I thanked him for for that education and that school. Um, I've, I still have, back then I printed them out and I found nice. them not that long ago and they're horrible. Oh <laughs> no, it's always embarrassing to go back, isn't yes. it? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. But you know what? That shows you that I've grown and developed and it's funny that like, that's how I got my start. And then from there, I just, I just did whatever I could do. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in a few positions where I kind of dictated what was going to be covered and how it was going to be covered. In other words, I had a lot of control early on. I think nowadays those kind of positions are harder to find. Like I was lucky at Test Pattern and a few other outlets to basically just be like, okay, do what you want. And so Mm -hmm. I would contact HBO or I would contact FX. In other words, I was allowed kind of editorial guidance very early, and I think that helped me a lot. Now everything is so pitch-based. It's like, it's really, I mean, I'm lucky at, 
Roger Ebert to have editorial control. But young writers finding editorial control is almost impossible now. Yes. Um, so I was lucky to get that early, relatively early. I mean, I was in my mid twenties. Um, and then, so then I honed those skills. Okay. I honed like, okay, this is what a film section should look like on a Friday, or this is what a TV section should look like on a Monday. Mm-hmm. So those skills I think were very, very important in terms of where I would end up. I feel like one of the things I do at Ebert is I know what the site should look like every week. You know what I mean? Like this is yeah. what we should be covering. It's just kind of semi-instinctual, but also something I've been doing for a while to like, we don't quite cover the waterfront, but we're close and I know mm-hmm. what needs to be there and what doesn't. Uh, and I think that's a skill set that I was lucky to be able to develop early on. Uh, but other than that, I just wrote wherever I could. And another thing I tell young writers, especially nowadays, sorry if I'm getting a little off track here. Oh, but, you're fine. Uh, and this is something I did early, and that is diversify. Like yes. I the the role of a what I learned over the last 20 years as the industry changed was mm-hmm. the idea of an Ebert who would just review films on a Friday for a newspaper was dying or and or dead by the time I got here. Yep. I had to do, I've done everything. I've done mm-hmm. TV books. I've done music reviews. I was a Kirkus book reviewer. I've done entertainment news. I've done celebrity news. I've done trail. I mean, I'm literally. Yep. So that way, if an opportunity comes up, if you can diversify that much, you can be the right person for it. You know yes. what I mean? It's like, it's like I have the skill set. Again, I would love to have that dream. There's a few of them left, like mm-hmm. your Michael Phillips from the Tribune, who just does film reviews on a Friday. But those jobs don't exist much anymore. And yeah. even he has tons of other side gigs. The film critic who doesn't have side gigs is is a rare right now. Don't <laughs> yes. It doesn't happen. So you yes. have to be able to. I have to be able to do TV recaps for Vulture or appearances here and there or find other revenue streams and it's not just revenue streams i some people might disagree with this but i think being able to cover all these different things has made me a better writer in each of them oh i agree no i think it's always good to branch out i've done music reviews book reviews i've worked on festivals grant writing technical writing i give notes on screenplays and i think it's interesting and it really does help expand your writing skills it was funny when i talked to walter cha i kind of asked him the same question and he was like yeah he is he said uh what i would tell young writers don't quit your day job because you're going to need it (laughs) it was like such good advice same thing that you were mentioning like those rare gigs where you can just like write about a film a week are pretty rare (laughs) and and fewer and farther between and i mean i know how incredibly lucky i am to be able to make a living doing what i'm doing in terms of the don't quit your day job thing i'll throw in there be incredibly patient in terms of balancing your day job i am pretty sure i wrote a thousand reviews before i got paid believe it or not I, I, i wrote so early and so often before i saw a dime and now I support a family on what I do. Mm-hmm. So you have to be really patient financially in this business. Yes. Uh, I don't mean to, I'm going to try to phrase this in a way that's polite, but I occasionally see writers just out of college wondering where the writing jobs are. And I want to look yeah. at the windows. I go, they're, they're not there for you yet. They're not no. going to be there for you yet, especially in our changing market. You're in your early to mid 20s and you're wondering why you're not making a living writing. No one is. And no one yes. ever really has. 
no. except way back in the Ebert's early days. For a yeah. long time, being able to make a living as a writer in your early 20s has been gone. And it, it shouldn't be that way necessarily. But the point is, in this industry, you have to devote a lot of time and a lot of effort and maybe do some free stuff for exposure as much as I hate that. But you have mm-hmm. to be willing to do all of those things and be patient with find a day job where you can do what you love on the side and build it up. Because that's what I did. I took advantage yeah. of a lot of day jobs. Yes. <laughs> like, I, I used their computer and long lunch periods. And yeah, if any of them are listening, I'm sorry for being unproductive, <laughs> but it happens. Oh, no, I was an administrative assistant and the it was like a new nonprofit. We yeah. barely did a thing. So yeah. I just spent all day like writing and doing yeah. other stuff because I yeah. would ask them, do you have anything for me to do? And no. And so it became pretty obvious. I was just sort of set dressing for the office like we have a secretary, oh, yeah. but didn't really do much. So, yeah, just spent the time writing. So that's yeah. a really good thing I to mean, point I- out. I always got the job done, but then I yeah. would write and do other shit while I waited for them to tell me what to do next. So exactly. I, I got so open about it, just like at an open cubicle, just surfing the net and writing stuff. <laughs> like I at a certain know. point, I just didn't care anymore because I was like, "Give me something else to do." I'm I'm always I'm the kind of person who, to a detriment, almost always needs to be busy. I, I'm not good me at too. downtime. So. I don't know Find a job where you can yeah. turn the downtime into working on your writing and take home a paycheck and some health insurance and build from there. I know. I I don't know if it's a Midwestern work ethic thing. I actually lived in Chicago suburbs for a little bit when I was younger and then grew up primarily in Minnesota. But okay. yeah, I not do downtime very well. Like a I, sick day or two, I just feel like I'm lazy. I'm not contributing. and. Right. I've seen you kind of say the same thing on Twitter and it's like, yeah, yep. Brian and I are kind of two peas in a pod there. (laughs) Yeah. I got to work on it to be honest, according to my doctor and my friends. Cause like I am very bad at taking a vacation or taking time off. I mean, even recently, like as recent as yesterday, I was talking to my wife about how I need a break and take some time off. And then as I'm falling asleep, I realized I made three pitches yesterday. (laughs) I was like, like, well, pitching pieces isn't going to help with the time off. So we'll see. It's just, I, I, I think it doesn't help this year. Do you know what I mean? No, like, okay, I, exactly. so this is the summer I'm finally going to take some time for myself and I can't leave the house or I might die. Like, yeah. it's not really, <laughs> not really conducive to fixing the, that personality flaw, you know? I know, I agree. Well, I know you have a special interest in Studio Ghibli films, which I also oh. love. Your coverage of them has just been amazing. Cool. I love that piece that you wrote. Cool. You said, perhaps jokingly, but I, I hope not, that that might be the subject of the first film book you write. So, Brian, what can we do to persuade you to write this book? And are there any other topics you'd love to explore? Uh, I don't know about the studio book. I'm torn on it. I'm not okay, sure. Gotcha. I mean, I definitely want to do it. I feel like there's, I haven't done a lot of research. I oh, feel like there's probably a book or two like that out there. I'm also oh, gotcha. just not sure in our current climate that, uh, a white American should write that book. If I'm just going to say true. that. Out there. Yeah. Uh, if I'm a like, and I don't mean that negatively. I mean, maybe if I could figure out an angle and a different perspective and, or just, how much I love it in my expertise. I'm not saying I'm not going to do it, but mm-hmm. I've been a little hesitant. Like, am I the right person for this? Do you know what no, I mean? No, I hear you uh, completely. Uh, and I'm just trying to be sensitive to that. I, I still, yes. it's still a possibility. 
for years I've been wanting to write a book about how zombie culture and zombie movies uh, rise up during dark times, about how they reflect our fear of the other, and which is why they were so popular right around Vietnam and after 9-11, there was a resurgence in them because our neighbors became people we were scared might eat our brains. So I want to write a piece about how zombie culture is influenced by politics and the state of the world. But again, I'm not sure if that book hasn't been written already. <laughs> There's been a lot of zombie books out there. The fact of the matter, Jen, we're deep into the cinema book culture. It's going to be hard to find an original idea. So, I'd love your take on it, though. It sounds yeah. like a really good topic. And I mean, think about it. If you chart yeah. when zombie movies are popular, they're always when there's some sort of like worldwide fear of the other. And the zombie movie has always yeah. clarified that. Um, yeah, very much. That's yeah. a really good thing to point out. Yeah, yeah. it was after 9-11, because I remember yeah, in huge. a screenwriting class, we studied the first act of 28 Days Later, which is just brilliant. Yeah. And, yeah, in this time, I've been thinking, I actually revisited 28 Days Later, and I was thinking, boy, you know, I could really watch I Am Legend and World War Z and Children of Men and all these, like, dystopian, not that Children of Men is zombies, but all these, like, dystopian movies. And so, yeah, that would be interesting, for sure. I will think about it. Okay. To To be blunt, as long as we're talking about it, as I've said, I raise a my wife's a stay-at-home mom. I've got three kids. I'm yeah. doing what I'm doing. I'm not sure the money's there in a book. Gotcha. So I'm, and sure. I just mean that in terms of like, I, I know I'm not going to make a fortune on it, but I have to, yeah, exactly. I have to balance yeah. things out in terms of what I do. But I've, I, I, a friend who's a literary agent did just reach out to me. So maybe the timing on this is right. So yeah. So. Perfect. Well, as a father of three children, are you getting them interested in film at all? And or what movies do they gravitate to? Um, it's interesting. That's a good question. Um, they're growing up with all the options and not just because of what I do, but because of the world we're in now. Yeah. Like Disney Plus and Netflix and all that stuff makes it a little different in that they can watch a thousand movies at the, on the iPad Whereas mm-hmm. I didn't have that luxury, which creates a different dynamic. Um, they're still into Disney, mostly. Uh, the oldest one is a little young for his age. He's 11, and he still likes cartoons more than probably a lot of 11-year-olds. But that's okay. Kids grow sure. up fast enough. Yeah. The 9-year-old, on the other hand, keeps trying to dig into scarier stuff. Uh, he loves 80s movies, believe it or not. Back oh, to cool. The Back to the Future is his favorite movie. And he digs Gremlins and Ghostbusters. He digs Gremlins a lot. Uh, he digs them enough that he decided to start Stranger Things, but made it three episodes before he decided he's not old enough yet. Okay, so, gotcha. Yeah. That's good that you know fun. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's funny. He watched two, and he was like, I can't do this. And then, like, <laughs> three months later, he watched the third one, and he was like, all right, still not ready. So yeah. Still, he's going to decide. Oh, that's cute. Yes. And then my youngest seven-year-old is, like, the most fearless child on earth. So they all are kind of developing their own personalities. But for the most part, I hate to say it, they like YouTube videos, and they're that generation. They're like, yeah, they don't take, I, I feel it, like I'm going to sound like an old man, but each generation takes film a little less seriously. My oh, opinion. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, film was a big deal. We had to go to the store, yeah. pick one out, bring it home. The best. Like, yeah. It, whereas now it's like 
what's new on Netflix on a Friday and there's, there's not as much of a ritual to it. And I think once you take that ritual away, it impacts how seriously it's taken. Um, Yeah. Now again, for granted a little bit. now. I'll play the other side, which is that the whole world has more access than they've ever had before. uh, And that's worthwhile. It allows new voices and unheard voices to come up. And so I'm not trying to say like all this stuff, all this exposure is bad. It just changes, yeah. changes the way people, I think, ingest foam, really. Very, very true. Yeah. Well, what have you been watching lately? Is there anything you'd like to recommend? Are you like strictly for work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can try to think what I'd like for work. Uh, to be honest, I and maybe this is more advice for readers or listeners out there. I very rarely watch anything that I don't turn into work. Okay. In other words, like it's almost always something that I'm going to turn into a piece or, you know, I know it's funny. I'll share this little trivia. The only things I watch like purely other than sports, I'm an NBA and NFL fan. The only things I watch that I don't turn into work is like, I watch the old reality competition shows. I've seen every survivor episode. Believe it ah. <laughs> yes, and I think one of the reasons for that is because I know it's not going to be work. It's a way for me yep. to like turn off my brain and do something else. Unlike. Yeah, we watch Top Chef, Amazing Race, that original slate of reality competition shows my family likes. So that's yeah. a nice distraction. In terms of that uh, stuff, uh, there's a documentary out this week called The Thousand Cuts. It's really strong. Um, okay. It's about it's about Duterte in the Philippines and how they've used social media to create a dictatorship in a lot of ways and yes it is very prescient for our current united states situation yeah um very timely yeah that's good what else did i see lately i haven't started lovecraft country yet but i'm very excited that's probably tonight that's the hbo series and that's getting pretty much raves um i've got a lot of stuff i'm excited coming up charlie kaufman's new movie i'm excited for um yeah uh mike flanagan's new haunting show it's coming in the fall i'm excited for that mm-hmm. um we, I, we think it's the fall probably is um there's something else on netflix oh they remade rebecca yeah i'm looking forward to that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. i mean yeah. looking forward to seeing it but right. oh my gosh i love the original so much but yeah yeah someone on twitter yeah. was like remaking hitchcock is hardly ever a good idea like, i know never. and i was like yeah <laughs> that's true uh, especially yeah. Rebecca, which is like a flat-out masterpiece. You can't really... I know. I'm assuming Ben Wheatley's smart enough to know he's not going to improve on it. So he's just going to yeah. <laughs> something different. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm curious. Oh, and the Sorkin movie looks interesting. The Chicago 7. I mean, oh, yeah, very I much. would normally be preparing for TIFF right now, but we're just going to have to wait and see what Netflix has in the fall. Really. I know. I just oh, received yeah. the screener for Tesla. So I'm looking forward yeah. to that one as well. Oh, and Sputnik arrived. So both of those, I, those I'm excited for too, actually. Yeah. yeah. Tesla had major mixed out of Sundance. Like major. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. I think I lived with two people, one of whom loved and one of whom disliked it. Like it's all over the map, which of course is the movies I'm most interested in Interesting. watching. Yes. So, <laughs> so, I want to see that pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's say the pandemic is over. There's a vaccine. Everything's good. And the Music Box Theater asks you yeah. to program a triple feature to welcome wow. everyone back. So, what are you playing for us? Is there a theme, or are you going for your favorites? I don't know if I can do that off the top of my head. I know. That's Just put you. Yeah. Of my head. 
Uh, you know, a movie I've always wanted to see there because I've never seen it on the big screen and I watch it like once a year and adore it is In the Mood for Love. So I Oh think, my God, yes. And especially given the broken connections in that movie and how we can't get close to one another, I think that would be a perfect Very comeback timely, yeah. from the pandemic movie. Uh, and then, but after that, you know what? Just I, I haven't seen enough Wong Kar Wai on the big screen. Just do Chungking and Happy Together and we'll all watch those. That's my answer. I know movies. that would be perfect. And yeah. his new uh, series and film is coming up the third part after 2046 and in the mood for love. Is that confirmed or rumored? I think that's still all like, no, is really it knows. rumored? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I know. I guess I don't remember. I, I wrote a piece on Tony Long recently for Phoenix yeah. Film Fest and when I was reading interviews with him, he was talking about the fact that like he shot two movies at once for Wong Kar Wai and that there was another one coming up that was, and he said, and it's the people from that. And so that kind of led me to believe that, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. For for the longest time, even recently, people still were calling it a film. I was like, I think it's a TV series. It's a TV series. Yeah. Uh, which is going to make it a little different, but I, I feel like we're all just kind of guessing, I don't, like yeah. scraping together things from interviews. But of course, I mean, yeah, I'm I a huge fan, <laughs> so I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite of his? Is it in the mood for love? Yeah, it is. I think so too. Yeah, very much. Well, other favorite movies. This is a good question to ask you. Uh, people ask me my favorites. I, I'm very basic in this regard other than i suppose in the mood for love but jaws is shaping for me in terms of what a blockbuster can and should be and yes a movie that i think is perfect from front to back uh and, and right then I was, now, <laughs> there's so many memes about it yeah exactly yeah. i was raised uh with a love for hitchcock so yep like, I gravitate back to Vertigo a lot. I think it's a perfect movie. That's um, my favorite. Yep. Yeah, I think it's when people say because I get asked every once in a while the best movie of all time. I usually say Vertigo or Jaws, uh, which again okay. is kind of basic, but they're both perfect. Like I know they, they're both. Yeah, I would change a single thing about either of them. So those are my two favorites. And then I would throw in Singing in the Rain, which I've seen a hundred times. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, Vertigo, Singing in the Rain, and The Godfather are like no, my three favorite movies. Yeah. yeah, so I'm kind of basic there too. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, We're, we know. still love it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Have you ever seen any Hitchcock on the big screen? I've seen Vertigo on the big screen. Oh my gosh, uh, I'm so jealous. Is, <laughs> it's so much fun. You want to know why? Because it's a one of those films where the credits are at the beginning. So at the uh-huh. end, spoilers to anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's got that sharp ending where she falls and he looks over the edge and then Paramount logo and then lights up. It's like, oh, there's no moment. <laughs> I actually worked at a movie theater where it was playing and I would always go in and watch the end because there's no like that moving nice around after breath. during the credits. Yeah. yeah, It's just like, boom, get out. Like, yeah. <laughs> done, now go. Yes. It's so great to see in a theater. The lights come up, and it's just like everyone's like stunned because uh, of that <laughs> ending. It's so yeah. fun. Um, I've seen a few on the big screen, I think. Um, okay. Vertigo, I think I've seen Psycho on the big screen. I know I have. Ooh, I think I've seen Rear Window, good. but I can't remember where. Gotcha. You said you grew up on Hitchcock, so were your parents into it? My parents were introduced me to classic films at a very young age. My mom was a huge musical fan. Which is why oh. I saw Singing in the Rain a thousand times. I saw Kiss I Me King that. a lot. Okay. Um, 
uh, that era. Uh, and then my dad was into Hitchcock and he showed me, I saw almost all of them at a young age. Uh, in fact, we're trying to decide when the boys can see Rear Window, which I think is probably the gateway, right? Rear Window's got to be the gateway to Hitchcock. I think so, yeah. It's so easy and simple, and it's not that dark. I mean, it's a little dark, no. more more implied than visual, and it's really easy to follow, you know what I mean? So I feel like that's got to be. And they've, of course, all seen The Simpsons that spoofs it, so they'll have some fun. Um, Very much, but, yeah, that's a good yeah, idea. I think Rear Window's the starting point. But I remember, yeah, at a young age, watching a lot of classic films, which I think, of course, influenced Helps. me. Yeah, and I said, I said in an interview on the site actually that uh, I remember at a young age being discussing things after watching them. Yeah, entertainment exactly. wasn't entertainment wasn't designed just to be like ingested. It was designed mm-hmm. to spark conversation about how things how the entertainment was delivered. And I remember even watching TV shows at a young age and discussing like the themes that were presented from front to back and how it was, Mm -hmm. how it was portrayed. And then that of course is, there's a direct line that can be drawn from those family conversations to what I do now. Yeah, exactly. I had the same experience. Well, my parents were pretty liberal in what they showed me. I mean, I make jokes about, you know, seeing Die Hard and Platoon when I was in like second grade, which was too early. But um, then later, though, like middle school, when I could really understand what was going on in all of these films it was nice because like i remember when my mom brought home like malcolm x and we could talk about everything that happened and that um her experience in the 60s and just it was a nice nice way to think about film as something more than just entertainment for sure Yeah, yeah i remember the late 80s uh I vividly remember two movies. Platoon, I don't think I saw in theaters. I would have been 11. But I think I saw it shortly thereafter on VHS. And I remember talking about that movie with my dad. And then Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I saw Do the Right Thing in theaters, which I would have been 14. Which is a good, fine age for that movie. Yeah. Uh, And I remember the impact of that, of course. Oh, yeah. Ever made. Um, Exactly. So, yeah, we have similar experiences in terms of analyzing our entertainment instead of just ingesting it uh, i imagine imagine if you talk to a lot of film critics or critics of any kind they all have that kind of background you have to yeah you have to learn early on that entertainment and art serves purposes other than escapism uh, mm-hmm. and that can be enriching in different ways i think your parents or a fig- some important figure in your life has to teach you that you know what i mean exactly No, I think that's a perfect way to look at it. Well, I want to thank you so much, Brian, for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed talking to you. I've always liked interacting with you on Twitter, but this was so much fun. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends.